Bibles to Titus chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, the text is written on the back of the insert. As we turn to Titus 2, we just want to review where we've come from. It's one of the shorter epistles, three chapters. Paul wrote this from most likely Macedonia to Titus, whom he left behind in Crete, where they had planted churches. And these young churches, unlike Ephesus, where Timothy was stationed, did not have elders or deacons. They were really formative churches, new churches. And so Paul leaves Titus behind to complete the task, to finish, according to Paul, what he says in verse 5, what is left lacking. And we've seen that the first order of business for young Titus is to establish and appoint elders, to go city by city, town by town, and identify godly men who are qualified to lead in the church. And we then saw last week, through the preaching of Greg, that the reason, one of the paramount reasons for this is because Crete, the culture at Crete is ungodly, and the culture is producing false teachers who are selling the culture, who are compromising the gospel. In fact, just sort of to review where we're going to start this week, let's start in chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now that's the danger. That's what Titus is up against. That's why he needs godly elders. And now we see in stark contrast to that the, our text this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Let's pray. Dear God, we pray that you would establish us in sound doctrine, that you would um, renew our minds by the preaching of your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would um, soften hard hearts, that you would help us to receive your word for us here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this morning's message is titled Sound Teaching and Sound Living, Mature Men. And the reason why I've titled it this way is really all of chapter 2 is one big section. It's bookended by the command that Paul gives Titus for him to teach. You see that in verse 1. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so it's a sandwich. It's, it's bookended with this instruction. This is what Paul wants Timothy to do, you, Titus to do, I'm sorry, Titus to do. It's really the second thing. The first was to establish elders. The second is to teach this content. 
And so this whole section's one big chunk. And, and what's going to happen is after the initial charge, Paul's going to go through case by case. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, slaves. And he's going to give instruction for what he wants Titus to teach. And we're going to take that week by week. But I want you to realize this is a whole section. And so sound teaching and sound living, mature men. And our text this morning can neatly be broken up into two verses, what Titus must do and what older men must be. What Titus must do, the first big point, and the second big point, what older men must be. And so Paul starts by giving Titus instruction, direction, what he must do. It's right there in verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so this is in direct response, as we saw from looking back, to what was going on at Crete with the culture there, with the false teachers there. It was a hedonistic culture, in many respects very similar to American culture. Um, People were lazy, arrogant, alcohol seemed to be a problem. They're liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's the culture at Crete, and as we saw last Week, there are teachers, and there will always be teachers, who can say that you can be just like the culture, you can live like the world, you can love the world, and you can still be a Christian. There's always going to be a market for that because people always want to hear that. They always want to hear that they can have their cake and eat it too. And so these teachers coming out of the culture, living like the culture, and that was where Paul points out their disqualification, that they look just like the culture. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And the connection Paul's making is how you live and what you believe are united. And so I know they're false teachers. I know that they don't believe the right things because look how they're living. And then we get this contrast, as for you. So this is in direct response to them. And it's interesting, you know, what is the response to the church being in an ungodly culture, to the church being in a corrupt culture, the church being infiltrated by false teaching? You could imagine many strategies of how to respond. Paul's, Paul's strategy, teach. You got to teach. You could fill in the blank with any number of other things you can imagine that could be done in response to this. And he just wants Titus to teach. In fact, that's the emphasis in this book. Verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. 3.1, remind them. 3.8, I mean, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. The way to respond to an ungodly culture, the way to respond to an unchrist-like world surrounding the church is to teach the church and bear fruit. That, that's Paul's concern. If you read through Titus, and it takes about 10 minutes or so, you'll notice this emphasis on good works, good works, and self-control. What Paul wants the church to do is to contrast the culture. He's concerned about teachers who are letting the culture creep in, The response isn't to start firing cannons at the culture. The response is for the people of God to set themselves apart through self-controlled, godly lives. Sound teaching and sound living. And so Paul wants him to teach, and the ESV says here, sound doctrine. The word can mean healthy doctrine, sound doctrine. It's something that he's already used a little earlier in the letter 
back in 1.9, elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. It occurs um, later in verse 15. Declare these things, exhort with all authority, let no one disregard you. He wants them to teach sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, teaching that promotes health, wholeness. The word can mean healthy or sound, and it's the picture of not lacking anything. If your health has no deficiencies, if you have no disease, if you have no ailments, you're healthy. If the hull of a boat has no holes, it is sound. It's a notion of integrity, wholeness, completeness. Doctrine that is healthy, that produces that type of health. We've seen the fruit of the false teachers last week. We've seen what their doctrine produces. And so Paul wants Timothy, Titus, I keep saying Timothy, I'm sorry. He wants Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teaching is the cure then for worldliness in the church. This is not unlike his instruction in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, where an even more solemn charge is given. He says, I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. A lot of people have argued over what in season and out refers to. I'll just make one observation. It is either in season or it is out at any given time, Right? Whatever, whatever season means there, it's either in season or it's out of season, which means Paul wants Timothy, and here it is Timothy, to be ready to teach at all times. Which brings us now to the third point, and where we'll spend a little bit of time, this connection between sound teaching and sound living. Because uh, Paul's assuming a connection. He makes it more explicit elsewhere. If, if you're trying to solve the problem Paul's facing of, of a worldly culture, of false teaching creeping in, telling Christians that they can act just like the world, that they can bear the fruit of the world. Maybe your strategy wouldn't initially start with teaching, but it always does with Paul. And that's because, as we've said before, there's a relationship to sound teaching and sound living. That, that all change starts with thinking true things and then embracing by faith true things and living true things and bearing fruit. There's this relationship. And so Paul always starts with teaching. In his epistles, there's always the doctrinal content first, and then here's how you live. So Romans 1 to 11 is primarily doctrinal. And then starting in chapter 12, here's how you live. And Ephesians 1 to 3, primarily doctrinal. Then here's how you live. Jump back to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Um, it, this is really clear here, this same understanding of the relationship between teaching and truth and living, which is vital to get. Now remember, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to stop false teachers, to assist the elders, and so he gets his charge in chapter 1, verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculation rather than the stewardship that is from God by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith 
And if you remember back when we looked at that, we wrestled with the issue of, here's Paul's charge or command for Timothy. Shut down, silence, stop the false teachers. And what that's going to look like is Timothy going into Bible studies, Timothy going up to people and telling them, you're done. You're not teaching that anymore. Stop. And then Paul amazingly says in verse 5, the aim of his charge is love. Love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. And so the connection we talked about being is this. Paul understands things such that where there is wrong teaching, it will corrupt the hearts and the consciences and the faith of men and women, and it will ultimately corrupt their fruit of love. And so Paul's concerned about love, which is why he wants Timothy to do the very difficult task and the confrontational task of shutting down false teaching. Because what we do always comes out of what we believe. You can go back to Titus 2 now. Because it's striking. I want you to teach, he says, what fits, what corresponds to, what produces sound doctrine. And then he goes on to describe the picture of what that's going to look like. And it's just, it's dignified older men, and it's mature older women teaching younger women and younger men. And the connection isn't as immediate. If you read through the next paragraph... This, this seems more moral. But, but let's read it again. As for you, verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, Kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may not be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. I want the older men behaving as they're to behave. I want the older women behaving as they're to behave. I want the younger women being taught and behaving as they're to behave. I want the younger men behaving a certain way. I want the slaves behaving a certain way. Paul's assuming doctrine relates to all of that. That's, that's the connection. He's assuming sound teaching is necessary for all of that. And then in verse 11, he does give some doctrinal foundation for this. And that's sort of the relationship of this whole text. After he instructs older men, here's how you're to live. And older women, here's how you're to live. And younger women, here's how you're to live. And younger men, here's how you're to live. And, and, and slaves, here's how you're to live. He gives some doctrinal foundation. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So that's, that's what Paul's doing here. He wants Titus to teach sound doctrine, but that sound doctrine has got to push through and become the foundation for how 
that various people in the church, the various stations and, and genders of life, are to order themselves. And, and this is why it's important. Otherwise, if you skip out on the doctrinal foundation, it becomes moralism. It just becomes legalism or moralism. It's simply because, okay, you do this and you do that and you do the other thing. But it's, it's got to be built upon the gospel. It's got to be built upon doctrinal content. God cares not only what we do, but why we do it. And so he gives the foundation for all of these strata, all of these classes. The foundation is the gospel in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What is that? That's Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, right? Being born of the virgin, living a sinless life, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the gospel is the announcement that Christ came, he appeared, he bore our sins on the cross to free us from the power of sin. Here it tells us the gospel also is a call for us to follow Christ in obedience and discipleship, to renounce our old way of living, and while we live, to remain hopeful, waiting, anticipating the return of the Lord. And then further unpacking that, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and, there, and there's, the, there's the cross, there's the atonement. And to redeem for himself a people, redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so that, that gospel foundation, what Christ did, he came and he died. And why he did it, he, to, to, to redeem us, to remove sin. He also did it so that we could follow him in obedience. And he also did it so we could wait for his returning. And there's justification, there's sanctification, there's glorification, all in view. And all of that is supposed to motivate the older men and the older women and the younger women and the younger men and the slaves to live as they are called. God not only cares how we live, but why we live the way we live. This, this guards against moralism and legalism. It's only by being justified by faith in Jesus Christ, it's only by having a firm grasp of the gospel that we can then be motivated to live this way. It, it's not that we become forgiven if we can do this, but we show the fruit of the gospel in our lives by becoming who God would have us become. This, this is the same um, connection that Paul made back in chapter one when he talks about his apostolic mission Verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So Paul says, I'm an apostle. I'm here. I'm Christ's minister. I'm sent for a purpose. That purpose is to call God's elect to faith and to teach them knowledge and truth, which accords with godliness. And so Again, we talked about how Paul separates faith from works, but it doesn't separate him very far. He, Paul is very clear here and elsewhere that we are forgiven, we are justified by faith, but he's also very clear that the faith that justifies will bear fruit. It is never alone. We're justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. A faith that does not bear fruit, according to James, is a dead faith. And so here, the gospel is supposed to motivate all these different categories and classes, and I'm emphasizing this because as we go through in the next few weeks looking at older men, older women, younger women, younger men, 
if, if we don't keep that in mind, this can become moralism. This can become legalism. This can become a list of things to do. And if you do them, then you're okay. If you do them, then God's going to forgive you. No. This time the doctrinal content comes at the end, but this is the fruit of gospel living. This is the fruit of embracing the gospel by faith. Sound teaching's relationship to sound living. And another way to think about it, I've said before, is the gospel is the root and godliness is the fruit. Or another way to say it, what does the gospel require? The gospel requires of us faith, repentance and faith. What does the gospel produce? Godliness, good works, love. And that's Paul's assumption here. He cares not only how the various people live, but why they live the way they live. So now let's round the corner and look at the first case. What older men must be? What older men must be? And really, there's four things on this list for older men. The fourth having three subpoints, and with our remaining time, we'll look at that. And again, you've got to bear in mind that the backdrop of the Cretan culture, where sloth and laziness and gluttony, and apparently alcohol, from what we can see, are all big problems. Um, and he wants the older men to set themselves apart. See, it's normal in many ancient cultures to revere old age. Our culture doesn't do that as much. And what we're going to see here primarily is that Paul wants the older men to be godly, dignified, self-controlled, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. Now, this isn't the only thing older men are called to be, but it's what they should excel in. Also, given the, the Cretan culture, it's the most sharply contrasted with what's going on. This is what should set them apart from the rest of the culture. This is how they should differ from the rest of the culture. So even though the instruction here is for older men, this is really fruit of the Spirit for everyone to bear, but older men in particular should be bearing this fruit, should be marking themselves off from the, the culture. And so let's just look through this point by point. First, sober-minded and it's contrasted with, or with the exact same injunction to the older women in verse 3. Older women likewise will be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And so you can imagine a culture where sloth and ease and laziness and gluttony are promoted and embraced. Problems with alcohol won't be far behind. And again, in our culture today, alcoholism, drunkenness is a rampant problem. In that respect, our culture is not very different from Crete. And so the starting point is Paul wants the older men, and we're talking probably men 40 years and up, to, to, to have sober minds, to be vigilant, alert, discerning. Now, in the Bible, alcohol is a sort of paradigmatic um, poster for anything that would, would take away your mental capacities. This would cover illicit drugs. This would cover marijuana. This would, anything that removes alertness. Remember in Ephesians, do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. It's about what controls your thinking in your mind. When a person's drinking too much, they can't think alertly. They can't think quickly. There are other things that can also do that to us. And so alertness, discernment, clarity, Focus. This is what should mark off older men. This is what should, we should be moving towards. Um, secondly, dignified. Dignified. Now, some of your translations will put it a different way, but the, the basic gist here is worthy of respect. 
worthy of respect. These, these men should mark themselves off from a culture that glorifies debauchery, gluttony, hedonism, drinking. They should be rather vigilant, discerning, dignified, living in such a way that demands and commands respect. These are men who've been walking with the Lord for 10, 20, 30 years, and it should show, and others looking at their lives, at least others in the church, should revere them, not just because they're advanced in years, but because of their lives, because they're living, dignified. Some translations may say serious, and, and the concept isn't that a, that a godly older man always has a scowl on his face, but it's just he's about the Lord's work. He's about eternal things. There's a gravity and a weight to him. And then point C, self-controlled. Now this, this word really kind of is a key term in all four cases. It doesn't show up as clearly in your English Bibles, but in every one, older men, older women, younger women, and younger men, that some form of that word is used. And this really sort of sums the whole thing up. If the Cretan culture is given to passions given to gluttony and hedonism and, and revelry and insubordination, then what should mark the people of God off is self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness, self-control. It's the notion of having your body and your appetites and your desires under control. And this is something we're all to be growing in, and the older men should be leading the charge. You get the impression here that, that there is no retirement from growth in Christ. We may change our employment, we may change what we do for a living and how we spend our days, but we're always to be pursuing these things. Self-control is a key feature, it's the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in one's life, and it should mark the life. And, and so contrasting this with what's going on at Crete, you just see a culture that's wild, you see men who are sober-minded, who are vigilant, who are dignified, and are exerting self-control. It's, it's quite a contrast this is the best apologetic for the world. This is how to respond to worldliness creeping in the church is for the, the church not to attack the culture, but just to live differently from it. To bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, not the fruit of the world. That's Paul's concern here. And then the fourth trait, soundness, which is the same word used back in verse one, sound doctrines. You see the connection between sound teaching or healthy teaching and soundness. And that word soundness means, as we said, free from defect. Free from defect or error. Wholeness. It can be sound as in the notion of a, the hull of a ship is sound. It may have scratches on it. It may have some thin spots. But as long as there are no holes in the hull, it's sound. Now you, may, you may have a cough. You may have a summer cold. But if you go to the doctor and you get a, a clear checkup from major illness, then you're healthy. Your health is sound. It's the same concept. And so, alongside of sober-minded, and alongside of dignified, and alongside of self-control, there's to be soundness exemplified in three areas. And now we're kind of really reaching the, the peak and the pinnacle of what he wants older men to aspire to. In soundness in faith, in love, and in endurance. And that, that's very similar to the trio that ends 1 Corinthians 13, faith, love, and hope. And in fact, in many respects, I think this probably is an adaptation of that for Christian men, but we'll look at them one by one. 
soundness, free from defect, healthiness in faith. And here, I believe faith refers to Christian doctrine, as, as, as Paul calls Titus his true child in the faith, earlier in the letter. That older men, as they old, grow older and mature, are to never stop feeding on the word. They're never to stop learning and growing. There's never a point where we reach where we've learned enough and we're gonna set that aside. And so men who've been walking with the Lord for 10, 20, 30 years, they just ought to be repositories of biblical knowledge, of, of faith, of guarding and trusting and loving and speaking to others the faith. This is, this is a goal. It's not just for some people, but it's for all. This is another reason why I try to emphasize that the qualifications for an elder aren't anything special. It's just what everyone's called to. It's as though the Apostle Paul wants all of us to run hard that way, and then he wants Titus to come and grab the front runners. Well, it's the same thing. Whether you're an elder or not, as you advance in years, as you grow older, God wants you, wants me, to become sounder and sounder, wholer and wholer, healthier and healthier in my understanding of the faith, in my understanding of his word. This is for everyone, not just leaders, not just for preachers, for everyone. Soundness in faith, Christian doctrine. Second, soundness in love. Isn't that wonderful that God, Paul wants older men to be known as lovers? The fruit of the Spirit is love, after all. And nothing describes that probably better than 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8. This is, this is what Paul wants older men to be sound in. He wants them to be complete in. Love is patient and kind, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And that, that description of love Paul wants us men as we grow and mature to more and more and more be showing that. Our culture has a character of the sort of crotchety older man. That's not what Paul has in view. He wants men who are sound in faith. And he wants men who are showing the fruit of love in all of its, all of its circumstances. And thirdly, soundness in endurance. Now the difference here, in many other places in the New Testament, faith, love, and hope come together. I think the connection here is this. Paul not only wants these men to bear this fruit, but he wants it to endure. And certainly, um, as one gets older, life becomes filled with more and more pains. I remember the age that I reached when all of a sudden it occurred to me that that pain in my shoulder may never go away. It seems like up until my mid-30s, I could bounce back from just about anything. And then somewhere a few years ago, I started to have a problem in this shoulder that just sort of stuck around. And, and I hear that as I grow older and older, more and more things will start to fail me and, and, and not work so well. And we have a culture that celebrates youth. Growing old, from my observations, can be difficult. And alongside of that, there's the difficulty of living your faith in the culture. 
And hope is what's going to sustain that. Hope is what's going to maintain that. Hope is what's going to fuel the endurance, the, the willingness to suffer for the Lord's sake, which, again, should mark older men. Newer believers, younger men may be swerved off, may, may have an uncertain course. Older, mature men who've been walking with the Lord, there should be an endurance built up, a perseverance built up that is unshakable as they stand on the rock, as they have their hope firmly fixed on the return of our Lord, the glory to be brought to us at his return. This is Paul's picture for, for older men. It's his picture and it's his goal for all of us. You know, I remember as a child having discussions about what do I want to be when I grow up? And I'm sure many of you had those same discussions. And what I'm seeing here in this text is this is what God wants me to be when I grow up. This is what God wants you to be as you grow up, as we grow up. Especially for the men here, this is God's prescription for maturity. You know, we're tempted to measure ourselves on employment, power, achievement, job. This, this is God's measuring stick for maturity. You, know, you want to be told, well done, my faithful servant. Aim at this target. This is Paul's prescription, God's prescription for the men in this room. This is what he wants us to excel on. This is what, by his grace, we will do. I just want to close by reading a verse in Psalm 92. I've been reading through the fourth book of the Psalms, getting ready to go there when we finish with Titus. And, and I came across this passage. I just want to encourage you older men to persevere, to persevere in your faith, to persevere in your love, to persevere in your perseverance. Psalm 92, 12 to 14. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Isn't that just glorious? The righteous continue to bear fruit even into old age. That's, that gives me such hope as I grow older, and I hope it gives you hope as well. This is God's purpose for you. You're never so old, you're never so advanced in years that God's going to put you on the shelf. But we continue to bear fruit, even as we approach older and older age. Let's close in a word of prayer, and I'll ask the ushers to come forward for communion. Lord God, I just pray that you would give grace, that you would help us to receive your word for us this morning, especially for the men here, Lord, those who are advanced in years, those of us who are getting older every day, Lord. We pray that you would renew our minds, that we would receive as your word for us this sketch, this outline of maturity, Lord, that we would be a people growing in our sober-minded vigilance, growing in living dignified lives, growing in our self-control, and that there would be soundness marking our lives, soundness in our understanding of the faith, soundness in our love for other people and soundness in our endurance, Lord. Help us to become the people and the men that you would have us to be, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. We now are going to prepare to celebrate the Lord's table.
This meal is a memorial meal. It does not impart on its own any particular grace, although all, all things done in faith and in obedience to the Lord mediate grace. But rather, this is a meal that symbolizes what Jesus Christ has done for us. The bread symbolizes his body. Uh, the grape juice symbolizes his blood. And by sharing in this meal, you declare, we declare that we, day in and day out, are feeding on the Lord Jesus Christ, are coming to him for nourishment. And so I want to invite anyone here who knows the Lord, anyone here who has received him by faith, anyone here who is trusting in him to partake. But if, if you have not come to that point where you have trusted in Jesus Christ, as between you and God, we would, Paul would encourage you to desist. This is a meal for those who know him, and all who know him are welcome to the table. Paul, in speaking of the Lord's Supper, wrote this, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. You will now take bread. Dennis, would you pray for the bread? Lord, we are, <clears throat> excuse me, so grateful for your love for us. And you said in your word that 
For greater love is this that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then you also said, while we were your enemies, that you died for us. And we're so grateful today for that. We would have no hope if it wasn't for your broken body and your shed blood on the cross. And we just worship you today for who you are and what you've done for us and are doing for us every single day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper. We are now going to take the cup. pray. Lord Jesus, you shed your blood for us. You, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, bore the wrath that we deserved. You shed your blood willingly. Lord, and we drink this cup as a sign of receiving you by faith as those who feed off of your love, who in you are righteous in the sight of God. Lord, we, we were not redeemed by perishable things like gold or silver, but by the 
blood of the spotless lamb, help us to remember that, to live lives worthy of that. In the same way also he took the cup after supper. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please pass the cups to the center for the ushers. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You're dismissed.